Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Christoph Koch will join us to discuss the feeling of life itself. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the brain is, of course, the source of all of our experience, but how does it give rise to subjective experience? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Christoph Koch. Dr. Koch is the president and chief scientist of the Allen Institute for Brain Sciences in Seattle and was formerly the professor at the California Institute of Technology. He's the author of numerous works on the subject, including Consciousness, Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist, and The Quest for Consciousness, a Neurobiological Approach. His new release is entitled The Feeling of Life Itself, Why Consciousness is Widespread but Can't Be Computed. And uh, Dr. Koch, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. So why did you decide to write this book? I'm the chief scientist and the president of the Allen Institute for Brain Science. We are not-for-profit, open science, big science, team science institute here in Seattle of roughly 300 scientists and staff focusing on understanding the mouse and the, the human brain. And I also have this deep and um, long-standing interest in consciousness and how consciousness arises out of brains and who else has consciousness and um, kind of deriving a theory of consciousness that explains in more principal terms how consciousness relates to the rest of the world and to um, our physical laws and to precisely determine how to measure consciousness and how far down the tree of life it goes. Now, we all have sort of a, a general idea of what consciousness is, but what do we really mean when we say consciousness from a scientific point of view? So most uh, scholars who study uh, consciousness, not all, today really mean experience, any subjective experience. So, so let's say the delectable taste of Nutella, the feeling of being bored or being angry or knowing what I had, you know, the feeling of, um, oh, tomorrow this is deadline and I'm, you know, somewhat anxious. Those are all different states of consciousness. So it's not only self-consciousness. Some people say, well, consciousness is really only about self-consciousness, that I know I'm going to die one day, I know I'm a man, uh, you know, I know I live in 2019 and all of that. Those is just a subset of all possible conscious states. Any experience, any pain, any pleasure, any sight, any sound, those are all experiences. And the mystery, the big question is, how do these sounds and sights and pains and pleasures, how do they get into our head? Because it's, it's, it's totally unclear. If you look at physics, you look at our best theories like quantum mechanics and relativity theory, there's no consciousness there. If you look at chemistry, you look at the periodic table of, of, of elements, well, there's no entry for, okay, here's a conscious, you know, here's the, you know, consciousness. C stands for carbon, not for consciousness. You know, if you look at our nucleot the ATGC chat of our nucleotides in our genome, there's no consciousness here. But then every day I wake up, I have feelings, I hear. First thing, you know, I come through, I hear the alarm, and then, you know, I, I touch over, and there's my wife lying next to me, and my, my dog stirs, and all of those things. Well, how did they get into my, into my head? That is the classical mind-body problem. And then from there, well, is my dog conscious? How do I know? 
you know, is the mouse in my basement, the mice or the rats, are they conscious? How far does it go? Is my computer an Alexa, you know, the Alexa I talk to, or, the, you know, um, is, is Alexa conscious? She certainly talks. You can ask her whether she's conscious, but is she really conscious and how would I know? So those are all questions, uh, you know, that people are very interested in and that I'm interested in and that I talk about in this book, The Feeling of Life Itself, because that's ultimately what conscience is, that feeling of life itself. If I get, offer you a bargain, I give you a billion dollars, all right, Charles, I give you a billion dollars, but you have to give up something. You have to give up all your feelings, okay? So no more loving, hating, seeing, touching, feeling, you know, fearing, dreaming, aspiring. All of that is gone. Now, from the outside, I couldn't tell the difference. You now you have a lot of fun. You now dispose of all your, you know, your vast riches. You lead a, you know, a, a very social life, but you're a zombie. There's no feeling inside anymore. Why would you take this, uh, this, uh, this billion-dollar offer? Because it feels like being dead or feeling in, in deep sleep. Because in deep sleep, you have no consciousness. When you're anesthetized, you have no consciousness. You aren't really home. So consciousness, in some sense, is everything we have in life is our conscious experience of it. So I mean, if sensation is really essentially consciousness, how far down the uh, evolutionary tree does it go? It's a very good question. It's difficult to answer when you go much beyond mammals. So most people assume that mammals share conscious experiences. Now, most mammals don't have a voice inside their head because that requires, but even little babies presumably don't have that because, you know, they can't talk yet. We adults, we have a voice in, inside our head. But, you know, if I look at my dog, so A, our brains are very similar. If I, so this is what we do every day here. We analyze little bits and pieces of the human brain and the mouse brain. And if I give you a little, you know, quinoa-sized piece of brain of, one of, of any mammal species, only an expert armed with a microscope can tell the difference. The basic hardware is all the same. We have more of it than a dog or a mouse, but then there are other animals like elephants and whales that have even bigger brains than us. The basic hardware is the same, just like our basic genomes is the same. It's not identical, but it's all very similar. So the hardware, if you want, is, is very similar. Evolutionary, we're very closely related. Our behaviors are very similar. They're not identical. We talk. They don't talk. But, you know, if you, if you hang out with a dog, you know they can communicate by their bark, by their, vo by their position of their ears, by their tail, and how it wags, etc., in which direction. They can communicate a lot of their internal states. But now as you move farther and farther away, a squid already, you know, an octopus, very different um, intelligence, very different alien intelligence looking at you. A bee, a bee only has a million neurons, has very complex behavior. Its circuit density is 10 times higher than the, than the density of, of our brain. Um, it can, you know, do all sorts of sophisticated things. It can recognize individual. It can learn the waggle dance. So I assume, you know, that a bee, it feels like something to be a bee. Again, the bee doesn't have a voice in its head. It doesn't worry about being fat. But I assume if it, you know, if it's just visited a, a flower and it's, you know, it has golden nectars on its feet and it's, it's flying in the warm sun, I, I assume it feels happy, just like you would be happy if you, you know, if you have accomplished um, um, something during the day. So, but it's difficult to test those intuitions rigorously without a theory. So some people like Buddhists and some panpsychists also in the West have argued that consciousness goes all the way down to even very simple creatures. It's right now very difficult to, uh, to test. 
Well, other people are sort of more on the exceptional side. They say, well, humans is really exceptional. Only we or maybe a few very closely related species like that can pass the so-called mirror tests like chimps and great apes are, 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 consciousness, are conscious. But I think most biology would say whatever we have, we share it widely, certainly among all the mammals. What about other types of uh, living creatures or even non-living creatures? Do they potentially have the capacity for consciousness? So that really depends on your theory. Ultimately, what do you believe? How does consciousness fit into the natural world? Okay, I and, and most scholars think it's a natural property. It's not a supernatural property like a soul that sort of God gave us and only we have it. Like, you know, René Descartes or other people fit, um, famously thought. I, we, we, most of us think it's a natural property of certain natural systems. And so you, you, and you need a theory to explain that. So I'm sort of more on the, on the what's called the pan-psychic side, which is an ancient sort of philosophical phase that says possible many more things are in mind than sort of the, by, than imagined by conventional Western canon, which is, you know, us and maybe a few special animals like, you know, the, the big animals and, and you know, um, um, apes and maybe cats and dogs and horses, and but only those big ones. I think it's probably much more widespread. The, can it extend to physical systems, to non-biological phys physical system? In principle, yes. There's nothing magical about the human brain, in a sense. Yes, the human brain is by far the most complex, highly evolved piece of active matter in the known universe, but it's subject to the same physical laws as everything else. I, you know, we, we, we don't get a pass. You know, we, we are still subject to all the, to all the regular laws. Um, so it may well be possible that complex, non-evolved physical systems are conscious. In particular, engineered systems, like on the one hand, cerebral organoids that we're building now from stem cells, developing in the lab an incubator where you put it, you know, I take some cells from your arm, let's say, from your skin, put them in a dish, add some trans transcription factor, put them in a warm place, like, an, like, you know, almost like an oven, an incubator, wait for 10 months, and then I get a million cells at all of your DNA, and I can begin to turn them into forebrain neurons, and they begin to show electrical activity. Well, this engineering system may feel like something. And on the other hand, at least in principle, uh, engineered systems like silicon, like computers, might feel like something. But in each case, you have to, that's certainly what this theory that I talk about, integrated information theory, in each case, you actually have to look at the mechanism by itself, the specific mechanism that sort of implements the computation using sort of uh, computer language to decide whether, does it, is it complex enough? Does it have uh, what the theory calls causal power upon itself? in order to be conscious. So digital, digital programmable computers, this is what the theory predicts, will not be conscious. If you look at our conventional hardware, whether it's CPUs or ALUs or TPUs, that hardware has very little complexity compared to the complexity of the human brain. Yes, you can simulate the human brain. There's no question. People are trying to do it. People will do it successfully in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You can simulate all the complexity of the human brain, including having a simulation that wakes up one day and says, I'm conscious, like Alexa does already now. But it's all, it's a deep fake. Because just like you can simulate weather, it doesn't get wet inside a computer. You can simulate the, 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 the gravitational power of a black hole at the center of our galaxy, but you don't have to be afraid that your laptop is going to suck you into, into its simulation. Why? Because in both cases, it's, it's a simulation 
and the simulation doesn't have the causal power of actual clouds to make you wet or of actual matter to bend space-time around you. And same thing, you can simulate behavior associated with consciousness, including human speech, but it doesn't make these creatures conscious. The theory that you mentioned, the integrated information theory, what does it dictate about what types of architectures are necessary for consciousness and how is that architecture implemented in the brain? So in principle, there's this type of architecture, computer architecture called neuromorphic architectures, where you have a similar um, wiring. So a typical transistor gate in your um, ALU, your CPU, gets input from four to five other transistors, and the output will send its output to four or five other transistors. Very low uh, technical term is fan in, very low fan out. Brains, neurons are very different. They will have 10,000, 50,000 inputs, 10 to 50 to 100,000 outputs. They're heavily overlapping. So the intrinsic causal power, this is what the theory ultimately says, these are highly evolved complex systems that ma maximize sort of integrating information and have maximal causal power upon themselves, which means a system, so it's something you can actually compute. It's, it's not some airy, fairy, fancy notion. Is how much does the current state determine the, uh, it's the next state of the system and how much, you know, its effects and how much the past, the immediate past, determines its, uh, its current state, its, its causes. And any system that has this ability has some minimal consciousness. That's essentially what the theory says. It says consciousness ultimately is the way the system feels from inside. It's how much intrinsic causal power it, uh, it has. And so by this measure, if you compute this on, on the current machine architectures, which have this very different characteristics where you only have a few transistors that provide input to any one transistor and a few t uh, output from any one transistor um, channel, um, they have very, A, they have very minimal causal power upon themselves, and B, whether you're running um, a tax software on your laptop or whether you're running a simulation of a human brain, the underlying causal power is essentially the same. So it says, well, there's almost next to no causal power associated with, with the computer, although in one case it may run, you know, it may do your taxes, in the other case it may, you know, it may simulate um, the human brain. So yes, computers can simulate the behavior associated with human brains, but that's different from actually being conscious, because ultimately the theory says consciousness isn't about input-output behavior, it's fundamentally about being. Consciousness fundamentally is the state of being. Part of the brain, in fact, very well-known part of the brain called the cerebellum, you know, which is at the back of the brain, which in fact has 80%. So roughly we have 86 billion neurons. 80% of them, roughly 69 billion, are in the cerebellum at the back of your brain. Now you can lose neurons there. For instance, you can have a, a stroke or a cancer. The surgeon can remove most of that. And the conscious you will not be affected. So I've talked to patients like that. They, you ask them very closely, well, well, what's happened since your operation? What is it you can't do anymore? They'll tell you, you know, they may walk funny. They're unable to do fast typing on their, on their, uh, you know, on their smartphone. They can't play piano anymore as well. As, so those things are all impaired. But if you ask them, well, what about your feelings? Do you smell differently? Do you see differently? Do you have different self-awareness? You know, do you have different memories? No, no, no. And so why is that? Well, the, the, the cerebellum has very little positive excitatory feedback and is organized in these very parallel loops, which is very different from cortex. So we, 
So all the clinical evidence tells us that your conscious sensation really arises from cortex, from particular the neocortex, the outermost shell, the outermost shell of your of um, of your brain, the the proverbial gray matter, and that is highly has highly um, complex uh, feedback with lots of massive recurrent excitation. So it's really maximized. The, the circuit maximizes this, uh, this co- the, 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 its uh, uh, causal power upon itself, which is why we think humans are so conscious because of the structure of, your, of their neocortex. Is it possible then that some of the types of consciousness that just isn't accessible to overall self-awareness? That- yeah, that's enti- so all, you know the neurologist who died several years ago, Oliver Sacks? Yeah, so he talks about this a lot. So, look, if you f- um, you can get the following paradoxical situation. There's um, one patient I'm now thinking of who lost his color vision in the upper left field, the upper left visual field, okay? He didn't lose it in the upper right or the lower field. Now, you can ask, obviously, he would see that, that you know, if, you, if I look at my TV and it's, you know, gray in the upper left, but color in the rest of it, I would immediately complain, right? I would immediately see it. But that's because I have a normal brain that can see the absence of color. But, if you, but these patients doesn't notice it until you point it out because they've lost the very brain cells that give rise to the experience of color. So for them, they can't tell that there is no color there because having the perception of no color requires you to have all the machinery of, of color and then seeing, oh, that isn't turned on, therefore there isn't a color there. So yes, if you lose those bits and pieces of the brain that mediate in that class of experience, you won't, you won't miss it until you do t- test and the tests show indirectly you don't have access to that information anymore. So this is why the split brain patients, so you know that these famous uh, um, patients in the 60s and 70s had epileptic seizures and to prevent the seizures from spreading to one side into the other side of the brain, the other hemisphere, surgeons would cut the corpus callosum, the 200 million fibers that, they, that link the left and the right brain. Those patients weren't aware that, they, that they've just lost half their brain. If you talk to them afterwards, they say, no, everything is normal. It's not that we suddenly see half the world. And you have to do fancy tests to show themselves, no, they're actually they're missing all this information. If you, test them, um, um, if you test them appropriately, they're missing information. They're actually only seeing half the world, but they're not aware of it because they lost the machinery that's in the other part of the brain. And now they're essentially two conscious entities inside one skull. One can speak, that's the left hemisphere, and there's the right hemisphere that, that can speak. It can, typically tends to be dominated by, by its left partner, but that's conscious on its own term. And you've got to artificially silence the left, for example, by anesthesia, to bring the, 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 the right hemisphere to the forefront. What do you think all this says about potentially then restoring those individuals who've lost those types of feelings? Yeah, so first of all, the, one of the first successes of the theory is that it, that it allowed us, and it's now being tested in a variety of clinical centers, to build what's called a conscious meter. Because, so in the U.S. alone, you may have five to 10,000 patients that are what's called in a persistent vegetative state. So Terry Schiavo, maybe some of your, uh, some of your listener will be familiar with. So these are people who have a stroke or a gunshot or um, you know, some other injury to their, um, to their brain, and uh, they're not in coma, so typically they'll open their eyes for a few hours a day and will, it looks like they're looking around, but there isn't any guiding intelligence behind it. And um, so occasionally they'll groan, occasionally they'll move you know, their arms or their head, but all seemingly without any purpose. 
And these people with proper nursing care can survive for years. Terry Scheid will survive for more than, um, than 10 years. So how do you know there's anybody home? So, of course, you try to communicate, you know, their loved ones sit next to them, they try to communicate. Some of these so-called minimal conscious minus patients can occasionally move their eyes in response to command. You know, you ask them, well, if, you, if you're in pain, move your eyes to the left. If you're not in pain, move it to the right or, or apply pressure to the hand. Or so. Some patients can do that, but many can't. And then you're really, is it, the, is it that there's somebody desperate inside trying to communicate to the outside, but all the motor cortex was destroyed? Or is there truly no one home? And so the theory, integrated information theory, has made this particular prediction and built this tool called Zap and Zip, whereby you pulse magnetic, you, you sort of uh, perturb the brain, you knock on the head of the brain, on the skull if you want, electrically speaking, with a magnetic pulse, and you measure the electrical reverberation using EG, and then you look at the complexity of, the, of these electrical reverberations to be able to say, is this brain still conscious but unable to communicate, or is the brain truly of very low complexity that's associated with people who have no consciousness whatsoever, like a patient in a deep sleep or deeply anesthetized? So that's a pretty cool thing because right now we don't have such a tool. We don't have such a tool that help in clinical practice to measure whether right now this patient is conscious or, and can experience something, whatever limited it is, or is not experiencing anything at all. Tristan, maybe you have some final words regarding your book, The Feeling of Life Itself. It's about the, the topics that most of us have, have always wondered about. Where does the voice in our head come from? Who else has it? And how does it relate to, anything, you know, to everything else? Can it be explained using natural laws? Those are the topic I treat because it is truly at the heart of our existence, feelings, the experience of life itself. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Christoph Koch. He's the author of the new book, The Feeling of Life Itself, Why Consciousness is Widespread but Can't Be Computed. And Dr. Koch, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. All right. Thanks a lot, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.